Hi, this is a podcast of the best bits of Breakfasters for week ending Friday the 26th of February. Breakfasters is a Monday to Friday breakfast show broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia. Coming up on this podcast, you'll hear us chat to Jess Hill about the abolition of the family court in Australia. And Jackie Tang came on to review Mexican Gothic by Silvia Moreno-Garcia. Introduce a new segment called What's Going On There? Where we answer life's tricky questions. Uh, and also, um, we got to chat to Michael Harden, who talked to us about martinis, mm. and also uh, discussed our favourite chockey bars. Excellent. Um, there's a fascinating exhibition called Bending the Bars at Old Melbourne Jail. We spoke to curator Andrew Gaynor, and with restrictions easing, we have looked at what the weekend held in store and had some Hens Night flashbacks. Triple R. A bill combining the Family Court with the Federal Circuit Court last week received Federal Parliament's final approval after passing the Senate. Here to explain the merger and its possible effects, we're fortunate to be joined for Brass Tax this week by Jess Hill, Walkley Award-winning investigative journalist, researcher of domestic abuse and author of See What You Made Me Do, which took out the Stella Prize in 2020. Jess, welcome back to Breakfasters. Hey guys, thank you. Our pleasure. Um, Before we delve into the effective abolition of the family court, can you give us some background as to when and why the court was set up? Yeah, sure. I mean, when it was set up in 1975, it happened as the result of a very unique royal commission, which was one into human relationships. And, um, And of course, this was initiated under the Whitlam government. And essentially that royal commission basically unearthed what was actually happening inside people's homes. It unearthed um, gay relationships and the extent to which that was um, occurring in the mid-1970s. It unearthed domestic violence um, and it looked very much as at how families were separating. And back then, you know, if you wanted a divorce, you had to prove certain things that happened. You had to prove cruelty or you had to prove that your partner had had an affair. It was often done very publicly. It could be quite tabloid. And so what the royal, what the Family Court and the Family Law Act established was no-fault divorce, which meant that if you wanted a divorce, you didn't have to prove that your partner had done you wrong. You just filed for divorce. Um, and so, as you can imagine, this was, at the time, a massive win particularly for women um, and it was seen as as a, as a huge step forward in the in the sort of feminist march towards equality um, and from that moment in 1975 when it was first established um, anti-feminist groups have been trying to destroy the family court yeah and so over the course of 45 years and more recently what's what are the arguments that have transpired in the, the well the, I th- this battle I think- that's taken place? Yeah, well, I think that so what we started to see from the 1980s onwards was what is essentially an um, an ideological takeover of the court by those anti-feminist groups. And I don't know, I mean, some people, um, some of your listeners may remember that in the 1980s, the family court became the only court in Australia to have ever been bombed. Um, there were multiple judges assassinated, including a judge's wife, and it was only recently that um, that we finally actually convicted the person responsible for doing it, who was an aggrieved father, um, who was suspected of this for ages, but but had never been convicted. And so, you know, that campaign of terror 
the way that was reported was, well, maybe the family court's gone too far. You know, um, classic victim blaming. Um, and what we saw in the in the years since there was this slow ideological takeover um, by men's groups such that now we have, um, well, we had <laughs> a court that, that had essentially, uh, like I and others believe, failed to meet its, its modern, um, modern requirements. And it failed for three reasons. People call it a specialty court, but it didn't adapt to the need for specialisation in family violence. The majority of cases that go through the family law courts are family violence cases. You know, I think um, it's up to 80% or, or slightly more where allegations of emotional or physical or sexual violence um, have taken place. But, you, you know, in 1975, when, when this was established, when we were only just opening up the first shelter, like there was no sense of exactly the prevalence of domestic violence in our society. So the family court sort of wasn't really established to deal with that kind of volume. And because the judges and, you know, the various other actors in the family law system don't receive mandatory training, um, even in child development, um, it really didn't meet the needs of the people who were coming through those courts. Um, there was, as I said, the ideological takeover by anti-feminist groups, and that really culminated in reforms in the early 2000s uh, from the Howard government that basically went as far to almost mandate shared parenting. And when you think about the fact that the majority of cases coming through are family violence cases, and then you think about the idea of mandated shared parenting, um, you know, that's a really bad combination. And you had had and do have still kids being ordered to see or live with an abusive parent that they and their protective parent have just fled. It's a horrific situation. And thirdly, chronic under-resourcing by federal governments. So, you know, that created huge delays. Um, it was a very difficult environment for judges um, and other actors in the family law system to work under. Um, any hope to really specialise in these complex cases, it's it, in much harder to do that when you are absolutely stacked with cases with not enough judges to hear them. So essentially we've come to this position where the family court itself is not a place that reliably protects kids, but this merger is not doing anything to address any of those. And what we're going to see is exactly these same three reasons the family court had failed to really meet its expectations are just going to be brought across to the federal circuit court um, because nobody supports this merger and we've lost an opportunity really to truly revise how we deal with family law in this country. So the government says the change will reduce backlogs with as many as 8,000 extra cases resolved each year and that's going to be called the Federal Circuit and Family Court, I think. Mm. Um, do you, d does that look realistic? I don't know. The problem is that, you know, this piece of legislation to, to abolish the Federal Family Court, it's not even really clear why it was done. Like, was it really done just because of budgetary and efficiency measures, um, it's hard to believe that. What it looks like is that, like, nobody is happier about this than Pauline Hanson and the anti-feminist men's groups. Um, it is what they've been trying to do for, for since the court was established. Um, and until we see, like, what actually occurs in the Federal Circuit Court, it's hard to sort of say in advance because if they were able to give greater funding and and actually resource the courts properly, why didn't they do that with the family court? Um, it's it's really troubling that 
the government push through something that the legal community sort of almost to the last person standing said, please do not do this. This is the, exactly the wrong thing to do with the family court. And what about the erosion of expertise? Is that something to be concerned about? Um, yes, I think, well, you know, what I think is to concerned about, there's some amazing expertise in the family court and there's some judges who have, you know, really no idea about family violence and child development. Um, but, but what we're going to see in the federal circuit court, unfortunately, is judges going from cases that, you know, criminal cases, all sorts of other cases, um, and then back to family law cases, you know, they're not actually going to be dealing with this day in, day out, um, which which is a confusing place for family law to happen, I think. And, you know, around the world, despite all of the, um, the various problems with our family court, it was seen as one of the most progressive courts in the world because it dealt with those issues as a standalone. Um, and these these cases are diabolically complex. They're really hard to pick apart. And to be doing that just in the cut and thrust of, you know, daily court um, duties seems insane. Is there a metro regional divide in these issues and with the court? Uh, in terms of Access? how long it takes? Or... Yeah. Yeah, I think well, I can't cite to you numbers, um, but, yeah, I mean, certainly... I, I think that I mean, a lot of the family courts are sort of based in metro areas. So if you're outside of that metro, you come to – like if you're in Wollongong, you come to the Sydney family court or, you know, so um, – but – so I can't, yeah, I can't really speak to whether – what the difference is. I mean, the, the delays are everywhere. Yeah. Uh, and when – at what point do you think we can start to see the tangible change and we could, you know, how long do we give this merger when we can offer some sort of sober analysis to see how it's gone? Well, I guess like with any sort of major institutional change, you've got to give it like, you know, a, a couple of years. But um, I don't – the problem is that there hasn't been like set out this sort of um, plan for how this is likely to change the nature of how family law is is dealt with in this country. So we don't even know what benchmark we're measuring it against. Mm -hmm. Like, are we measuring it against fewer delays or are we measuring it against children being better protected? Um, because actually what's, uh, like, you know, report after report after report and inquiry after inquiry has said you need to have a system that reliably protects children and this system does not protect children. So if we don't have that benchmark being set with this merger, then the most important requirement of the family court is not being um, is not being met. And, you know, if we reduce some delays, I guess that's good. Um, but that's really not the main game here. Goodness. And uh, so it all sort of stemmed from Pauline Hanson and here we are. Mm -hmm. Well, that's what you got to wonder, right? Like it's sort of why has this become such an urgent issue to merge these two courts when it is not an idea that's been floated by anybody <laughs> aside from the government. Um, I, it's, and this is what's so depressing about this is it's like you've got to look behind what the official reason is around budgets and efficiency and it looks Machiavellian. You know, it looks like Pauline Hanson has had her number one demand met 
Um, you know, she's got some very complicated history with her own sons around alleged sexual offences and, and issues in family court that she revealed under parliamentary privilege. Um, and so if this has been done to secure her vote in the parliament and what will happen is a total emboldening of her following, um, then that is just so craven hmm. when when this is one of the most critical elements of the systems we use to protect children um, from family violence, that it could be handed over to someone like Pauline and and that she could be given it almost like a Christmas present uh, is just, yeah, uh, like kind of leaves me speechless. Yeah. Well, the National Sexual Assault Domestic Family Violence Counselling Service uh, contact number is 1800RESPECT. And uh, we've been speaking with Jess Hill. Uh, Jess, thanks heaps for chatting with us. Thanks so much, guys. Triple R. Back to review books this week, or book, I guess, is bookseller and regular judge for the Victorian Premier's Literary Awards, Jackie Tang. Hey, Jackie. Hello. Good morning. Hey, guys. Good. Really, really swell. Um, what, have, what have you been reading? Um, so the book I'm going to be talking about today is a sort of sci-fi fantasy book called Mexican Gothic by Silvia Moreno-Garcia. Um, it's really an atmospheric kind of gothic thriller and it's set in the 1950s in Mexico where our protagonist is this young 20-something socialite called Naomi. Um, her beloved cousin Catalina was married last year to this very dashing gentleman called Virgil. Uh, his family is kind of down on its luck but has this dilapidated estate in the mansions where they once controlled a silver mine and in Catalina's letter to Naomi uh, it's kind of got these incoherent ramblings about visions, a house where people can hear everything and the walls move. And so Catalina kind of and her family are a little bit worried, obviously, as you would be if a family member sends you a letter like that, um, but also a bit sceptical because she wants to do a master's in anthropology and has quite a rational brain um, and decides that she's going to go visit just to see what's going on and also whether or not Catalina might need some psychiatric help. Um, so when Naomi arrives at this estate, which is called the High Place, like she finds all of the trappings that you'd want from a typical Gothic mystery. It's got this shabby, decaying grand house, a family very intent on protecting its secrets. Um, Virgil is sly and charming. He has this austere aunt who feels kind of like a distant literary relative to um, uh, Mrs. Danvers from Daphne Memorial's Rebecca. And he's got this ageing and ill father who takes this really creepy interest in Noemi and uh, feels very intent on talking about bloodlines, which is obviously gross. Like, that's a big <laughs> warning sign right there. Um, the only person that Noemi seems to be able to kind of delicately forge an alliance with um, is Virgil's shy cousin, Frances. And so the first two-thirds of this book, I think, make for a perfectly good gothic thriller. Like, it does what it says on the cover. It's Mexican. It's gothic. There's lots of dusty armoires around. Like, if you want a candelabra, that's there as well. Um, <laughs> there's a lot of kind of descriptive language, you know, about the rundown house. And there's a nice build-up about the dread of this family. It kind of reminds you a little bit of something like, um, you know, like Jane Eyre and has echoes of Bluebeard and fairy tales. I also think that Marina Garcia is trying to deliberately do something about, like, that figure of the crazy wife in the attic. Like, Catalina is obviously disturbed by something happening in the house um, and the family has... Uh, the Doyle family 
has ties to um, English settlers. So there's that kind of feeling of like, you know, the Indigenous woman who's sort of being seen as hysterical by a uh, family from Europe. Um, but obviously, luckily, Catalina has the support of Naomi there, who's like really intent and willful and trying to figure out what's happening. Um, I won't spoil it for anyone, but once you reach the last third of this book, I would just recommend that if you are two-thirds of the way in, just put the book down until you have enough time to finish the rest of the book because otherwise you will be just like me, which was kind of like racing through the pages, unable to sleep until like 1 a.m. Because like I was expecting a gothic mystery, your typical kind of thriller, and I will just say that this book is shelved in sci-fi fantasy horror for a reason, um, and the magic that Moreno um, Gussie employs are just really brilliantly imaginative. Um, it's kind of got this creepy, sinister quality in a really visceral way, like you feel the wrongness of it in your gut. Um, this kind of like a twisting, fleshy, gross element it's all slick with like horror and like foulness did you have um, nightmares sounds so scary it's it's really it's really good like it's i didn't have nightmares but i guess like the terms that it calls to mind is like body horror you know that feeling that like something's intruding on you okay. <laughs> or into you um on a visceral level so yeah it's great i really <laughs> recommend it at 7 30 a.m or whatever time it is um but there's also like quite interesting commentary um that the author is actually providing as well because it is set in mexico because the author is mexican there's like a lot of stuff in there about colonization um the exploitation of the country's resources like the Doyles have this silver mine um, and the town is very, the township around the estate is very reliant or has been very reliant on it in the past. Um, like there's also stuff around kind of the colorism between families with kind of lineages that are tied to European settlers and those with ties to the lands indigenous people. So yeah, it's like, it's not just, it's both a really good ride. And then afterwards you're kind of, you kind of come out of it and you're thinking a lot more about, um, about the country's history as well. So, yeah, when you I said, highly, when, highly recommend it. When you mm. said two-thirds of the way through, put it down, I did not expect it to wind up where you ended up there. Yeah, <laughs> yeah no. Like, it doesn't get any better than that. <laughs> <laughs> Chuck it I out. Admit, I was a bit impatient because I, I, I get quite impatient as a reader. Sometimes I was like, where's it going? Where's it going? Like, mm. I think I I thought I knew what was happening, and then it just kind of blew me out of the water. It was so good. Can I ask, when when I hear classic gothic horror, I can visualise it. Mm. Uh, but what about, how does that relay in a fiction? It, like, it, is it, can you speak to the, the language that's deployed or the sense of um, space where that visual element comes across on the page? Yeah, I always associate, I guess, gothic horror with, um, like, the reason I think it's quite a visual-seeming genre is because a lot of the time it's about, I feel like, how the environment is reflective of something simmering underneath um, what's going on with the characters and what's going on with the story. So it feels like there's always some kind of secret that's... um, usually to do with kind of desire, to do with the things that people aren't able to um, express in kind of proper society, threatening to erupt and to kind of like burst out, you know. So I feel like that's why this, the need to evoke something atmospheric is so strong in Gothic horror because you need to kind of feel like there's something 
out there that's going on um, that people aren't willing to talk about because I guess traditionally, you know, polite society wouldn't be talking about things like sex or desire um, or or trauma as well. Like, you know, there's a reason why so many family, um, so many kind of gothic stories are about family histories. It's about kind of like the secrets and the wrongness that happens. And that's very much the case here in the story too. And the author, uh, Sylvia Moreno-Garcia, is anything that piqued your interest there? Sorry, what was that? Is is there anything that piqued your interest uh, about the author? To to be honest, it was literally the cover. I was like, Mexican, Gothic, yes, that sounds great. (laughs) Um, It's also just, I mean, she's done a lot of fantasy in the past and she's also written um, a crime novel. One of her fantasy novels is called Gods of Jade and Shadow and I think it was shortlisted for a Hugo. So she's kind of been on my to-read list for a little while. Um, I think this has kind of been one of her breakout books. It had a really successful summer um, in the US last year and it was shortlisted for a bunch of awards as well. And I think it's getting turned into a movie. Everything's getting turned into a movie so (laughs) I'm not sure what that says really but um, but yeah there was a lot of buzz around this book last year. All right. It's Mexican Gothic by Sylvia Moreno-Garcia and uh, Jackie Tang, thanks so much. Thanks, Jackie. Thank you, guys. Triple R on FM, digital, online and via the app. Obviously, I'm very excited to be living back in the city again. Um, Living in the big city. And one of the things that I really like is just the random things that I will come across. It doesn't happen that much in the country. Mm. Um, so, like, things where you just, you see and go, what's going on there? Yeah. What's the story behind behind this? About? Like, um, the other day I came out, I was about to hop in the car and then riding down the street, I saw, there was someone riding a, a BMX, mm. like a little BMX. Um, I was like, oh, that's... That's not a kid. Oh. <laughs> that is a a woman wearing heels. What? Yeah. She stole it. No. What? <laughs> Who, what's going on there? We don't know. Getaway heels. <laughs> it was, she was wearing heels. She was wearing a power suit, like pencil skirt, power suit, nice pair of heels, dressed obviously very nicely. Yeah. And then, But then riding this BMX. I'm going to have a guess. What do you think? Um, maybe she had to get somewhere quickly right. and borrowed her son's. Business. That's what I. That's All what right. I went for. I'm going to say, ch- children's bike. Yep. Compact. Ah, oh, take it to work. Yeah, can take it to work. Will fit on a tram if you need. You're not going to be self-conscious. Well, obviously not. I mean, <laughs> you I mean, should have been a little ridden, more self-conscious. <laughs> if you've yeah. already ridden it to the tram. No, but like you're taking up space on the tram. Oh right, yeah, yeah. Was she standing up? Do you have to stand up on a BMX? You can't. Uh, don't, wouldn't you be a bit squat? No, she was, she was like a smaller woman, so got a, you know, just got the knees up <clears throat> a bit high. I did, I did try and take a photo. She, she said, but I, I was She too... said, please don't take a photo <laughs> yeah. of me. I mean, how would you, because you're right, the knees, are, if your bum's on the seat, your knees are too high. But if you stand up, is there a problem with standing up? Oh, and a pencil skirt and heels, I imagine it's quite difficult. But I feel like I just thought BMX yeah, maybe she was standing up. Well, things you went over little bumps with and stuff. Little bumps, that's not what they're called. <laughs> Speed bumps Mugles, and like skiing thing. Tracks and... I'm so impressed that heels post lockdown. Ugh. A lot of people are like, um, you know, I'm jettisoning anything uncomfortable, including yeah. me. Uh, and hopefully I'll ease back into 
real life. But yeah, a lot of people have thrown away the. You know, Dono was going in, was wearing a shirt. Yeah, to and work a topless. Or, <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's right, like he was getting a vaccine. Do you know what I thought? Maybe um, rather than just going, maybe she was, I'm with you on the running late or something. I thought, well, she's, because she's dressed so nicely that maybe this is a job interview. Oh, no. Oh, but imagine turning up to the job interview. <laughs> You're sweaty. Yeah, you'd look mm. like a nutter. Hi, where can I leave my BMX? Yeah, but if I was a boss. I like, I like your attitude. Yeah, I would like that attitude too. I mean, Look yes. at the effort you went to to get here. Yes. You're high. Yeah, yeah. I mean, yesterday I saw, and there'd be people south of the Yarra who were like, how could you have not have seen this dude before? But I hadn't. Um, guy in a botanical gardens um, playing chess by himself, dressed in a suit with a hat, oh. and then stopping only to play the didgeridoo. Oh, wow. Amazing. Yeah. This is – we've got one on Northside. <laughs> oh, yeah. Similar – well, not a guy playing chess, but a, I can't believe you haven't seen this guy. Yeah. And that is at Yarra Bend Park. <clears throat> if you walk around, there's a guy that plays a saxophone to the Eastern Freeway. <laughs> oh, I haven't seen him. Oh, well, treat yourself. What I did see – Just practices, like just – like if you you know there's a walking track around Yarra Bend, so near Dyke Falls, and if yeah, and he's just standing at the fence, looking out over the Eastern Freeway, and just practices his saxophone. All right, that's kind of a considerate place to practice. I think so. Yeah, not in anybody's way, not making noise in yeah. your apartment. Well, and I, I'm just fact finding here. But when he's doing it to the Eastern Freeway, is the idea, well, I'm not going to bother anyone because... Mm. I think so. But Dyke Falls is quite idyllic, isn't it? Yeah, it's a bit further away. It's not like you're sitting at Dyke Falls and yeah. there's a sax in the background. <laughs> yeah. It's, Careless you know, Whisper. a five-minute walk yeah. from there or something. So, Careless But it's, <laughs> it's lovely. Must be housemates who... Say so, so get out. Get please. out. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I did see a few outdoor instrument practicing during lockdown. Did you? Yeah, I saw it around Darren Parklands. I saw someone else doing – it wasn't this guy because I don't remember a saxophone, but I reckon I saw a trumpet in um, All Nations Park in Northcote. I saw a couple of people practicing. Mm-hmm. I feel like they were they were younger people. I feel like their parents had said, please practice yeah. in the park. Yeah. <laughs> God help us all. Yeah. Um, also, here's another one. Mm. Um, <clears throat> catching the tram home the other night. And so it would have been, it was quite late, like 11.30 or something. And a guy gets on the tram and has his own chair. And it's like a white, not an office, but just like a, a like a dining room chair oh. on its own. <laughs> What's going on there? What's going on there? What's going on there? <laughs> so not even a, not even a foldable. Not, couldn't fold it up, just a white <laughs> How what was he? Room. How did he seem otherwise? Perfectly normal and very comfortable. Like he's like he like he'd just been shopping and bought a new chair and oh. he was taking it home, but it was eleven thirty at night. <laughs> yeah, and of course, a dining room chair requires friends. Yes, mm. and I reckon you might want a f- few chairs. Yeah, that's what I meant. Yeah. Do you yeah. know what I did the other day? <laughs> friend, uh, chair, yeah, friend, chair, chair, friends. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I recently sold a chair online, like yeah. a you know a chair on on marketplace that I wanted. To, it was like a dining room style chair. It was white, but I was thinking really? it could it could have been a similar vibe with this guy where he'd bought it 
be gone and bought it, you know, so not from a shop because retail wasn't open or whatever. Oh, yeah. yeah. In the, he got on the tram in the city. Maybe he got the tram my, in. Here's my thing. Maybe <clears throat> bought the chair earlier in the day mm. and then someone said, do you want this code? Do you want to grab a drink while you're here? And he goes, oh, I've got this chair. And he goes, don't worry about don't it. Don't worry the about chair, it. The chair fine there. Yeah. And then lo and behold, five beers later, yeah. I've got to get home. And if you're going to lug a chair, you might as well sit on it. That's the other thing. Great theory. Yeah. So you don't think he's just bringing the chair wherever he goes? No, because he didn't sit on it. He didn't sit on it. No. Oh, he didn't sit on it. <gasps> no. Oh, that Did he sit everyone. down on the tram, like on a tram no, seat? St- stood up. <clears throat> oh, God. Stood up and, you know, stood up where, where there was enough space for him and his chair. <laughs> okay. Next time you see one of these people, I reckon you ask them. Yeah. What's going on there? Triple <laughs> <laughs> I'm hungry, I want something to eat Something with a crunch and very sweet Oh, our resident Sybarite, Michael Harden, is here to give us the dirty on martinis G'day, Michael Hi, how are you going? Really, really well, I'm very excited Yes, yes, well, you know, there's, there's lots to be excited about martinis I thought there was sort of like seeing it was like my greatest friend during lockdown I thought I'd better, you know, give it a bit of, bit of time and love Yes So yeah, the mar- martini is a, uh, is a classic drink, probably the cocktail of all cocktails, I would say mm-hmm. um, it's, uh, it's got a very long history it's, uh, It started back in sort of, the, there was first sightings of it probably back in the um, late 1800s was the first time that it sort of started to appear in some form or another, but kind of morphed into its more current form in about 1905 in New York at the Knickerbocker Hotel where it was a, a drink with um, two parts gin to one part vermouth to a little bit of orange bitters, um, which some people still make it that way. Um, but it is, um, it's one of those drinks that sort of like has been refined over the years and it's kind of also the, the, the um, proportions of gin to vermouth have kind of changed over the years and it's sort of like it's become very, very, um, it's all, almost like a competition about how dry you have your martini. There's some, some people who think it's the only way to drink a martini is to sort of put gin in a glass and then wave the vermouth over the, the, <laughs> over the top of it. And, uh, that, that's about as much vermouth as you need. But I think that's but taking it a little bit too far. There's sort of like, you know, but, you know, it's martini because it, it's the beautiful, the beauty about it is it's essentially a two-ingredient drink. Mm-hmm. And so... Anything that you do to it is obviously going to make quite a lot of difference, and um, that also leads to a lot of pearl clutching amongst martini aficionados because it's like, oh my god, how could you dare do that? And um, I have to admit that I'm a bit of a pearl clutcher when it comes mm-hmm. to a martini, you know, particularly when you come to things like, um, you know, with the whole the whole shaken not stirred thing that that James Bond um, brought, you know, Ian Fleming and James Bond brought about. It was, um, um, you know, it's like. James Bond was, you know, definitely a barbarian, not just because he killed people for a living, but because um, the uh, the way that he made a martini, which was shaken, not num- number one, shaken, not stirred, and then number two with vodka. And uh, let me tell you right now, I, this is this is where I draw the line. If you're asking for a martini, you're asking for gin. 
Vodka vodka is vodka is another drink altogether. It actually had a a vodka martini. Actually, originally had another name, which was it was called a kangaroo. Uh-huh. Which was back in it. So nobody can quite work out why it was called a kangaroo, but that's what it is. So it's like it's like it's not a, it's not a martini. So James you know, Bond's not going to go around asking for a kangaroo, though, is he? Doesn't sound no, quite exactly. Exactly. Here's well, my theory a- on it: why it's called the kangaroo because it's um, gins on the top shelf, vodkas on the shelf below, down under, kangaroo. <gasps> Wow, that is genius. I'm going to I'm going to use that. Thank and you. That it's from <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Did you know? So, uh, but also, yeah, and it's like, but probably the bigger crime when it comes to James Bond, bigger even than the vodka, is the shaking bit because the beautiful thing about a martini is that it is a lot of it is about texture. Because when you're making a martini, like, so I'm kind of like, my recipe for martinis that I've been using, it's sort of like, I like a, I like a decent amount of vermouth. So I usually sort of like a four parts gin to one part vermouth um, for starters. So, and you want to use a really um, simple London dry gin. So something like, like something like a beef eater or something like that, that's just a very plain gin with mainly juniper. I find that a lot of um, Australian gins, for example, have a lot of botanicals in them that kind of get in the way a little bit. Like I think if you like that sort of stuff, then that's great. But it's like if you're really like yeah. want to be a martini. <clears> if you're a hack that likes flavour. <laughs> yes, yeah, exactly. Exactly. It's sort of like, you know, that's, yeah, you've got, you've, you're taking the wrong end of the, the toothpick on that one. <laughs> <laughs> But, uh, you know, you've got uh, – so with the, with that those um, proportions in mind, you that you make sure that you, you stir a martini, you don't shake it because if you shake it, it puts all this air into it and, like, the ice breaks up, you'll have shards of ice, it'll over-dilute the drink, whereas if you stir, not only do you have, like, a meditative 30 seconds to think about how great life is that you're now about to have a martini, but it gives the it gives the martini a much silkier, smoother texture, which is sort of one of the things. So you want to start with a frozen glass. You can use a martini glass, you know, the, the classic sort of V-shaped martini glass is probably the best um, in some ways, but it's not. I don't find that it's absolutely imperative to have that glass, but it is imperative to stir the, the martini quite gently and then strain it into the glass. Um, and then um, you can, what I've also found, which is a, a recent thing, is to add a tiny little bit of salt into mm. it. So you make like a salt solution of water, say sort of five grams of salt to about 20 grams of water, stir that all up and then just add a tiny dash of that to the martini, which gives it this really delicious kind of savoury, kind of almost crunchy kind of flavour to it as well. So you've got, and then that it's sort of, if you if you can't be bothered with a salt solution, that's another reason why people use olives as a garnish, mm. because they add a little bit of salt in it as well. In a do, do you ever use olives or you, you're dissolving your I, own salt? I, I prefer to use olives, but I, I have found that I've also sort of, because I was, I was always olives over, because the other classic garnish is a lemon twist. Um, and I always found that I liked the olives better and I realised it's because of the salt. And so I tried the martini. It's been extensive experimentation. <laughs> tried the martini with a lemon twist and some salt in it. And it is super delicious. It's a, it's a really good way to uh, to drink a martini oh, that's that way. good. See, I don't like olives, so you can just do the salt. Yeah, yeah the, with the lemon and just a tiny little bit of salt. Mm. The other one, I don't know what, what you think about this, Geraldine, but the other one is one of my favourites at the moment. It's not 
officially a martini. It's pretty much basically your basic martini, but instead of olives or lemon, you garnish it with tiny little pickled onions. And, um, and that's called a Gibson. So, um, which oh, yes. is which is one of my favourite alternatives to the martinis. So, um, it's a good way that. So, yeah, it's that that stirring is the and like and making sure that you've got a, a cold glass. The glass is frozen, preferably your gin is frozen. If you're making it at home, just chuck your gin in the freezer. Yeah. And um, because what you're going is for sort of Arctic level temperatures, because it's all about with a martini, it's all about um, the the texture. And, you know, and once, and, you know, everybody knows that once gin warms up, you don't really want to be drinking warm gin because <laughs> it's like, yeah, it's gross and it's kind of, it brings out all that sort of burny alcohol stuff that happens that it's sort of like it's, it's nicely um, taken over by a, by a snowy, snowy um, freezing cold martini. Um, a couple of questions with, um, okay, so with the vermouth, um, there's like a sweet or dry. Does it matter which one you use? Is it just a term of preference? You really want to go dry. Okay. And go, but there are sort of variations. If you if you don't mind, like vermouth, like I think it's coming back into its own a little bit because it was always, like as I was saying, you know, smaller and smaller and smaller quantities of vermouth. Mm. But now it's sort of people are realising that it's actually a really nice drink with a little more vermouth. So there's there's one that you can do that is um, that is sweet and dry. You can use equal parts sweet and dry vermouth, so it'll sweeten the drink up just a little bit. Um, you know, and then there's sort of like there's other kind of ways of doing doing the vermouth as well. It's sort of like you can do like you know how everybody gets dry martini. Well, there's a wet martini, which just means greater quantities of vermouth. Um. There's a uh, there's a fifty fifty. Which is a it's an official drink, which is equal parts, and then there's an upside down, which is more vermouth than gin. I think I'd like that one. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's sort of like you know, it's a really beautiful. Just the vermouth gin combination is kind of it was it was it was made to be together because the, it's got that um, the gin with its beautiful sort of um, juniper kind of, which is that sort of bitter sour, slightly sweet kind of combo. Mm. And then you've got the vermouth, which is all very herbal. So it's this quite sort of plant-based, delicious kind of combination of sort of savoury flavours, which is really, really great. And what about a dirty martini? Dirty martini, I do love a dirty martini, I have to say. And there's degrees of dirty. Like at um, there's a bar in Fitzroy called the Everly, which makes great martinis, and they have three degrees of um, dirty martini. So there's a dusty martini, which has just a dash of olive brine. So it's the brine from the olives that you, you put in. Um, there's a dirty, which is kind of your regular thing. And then they have a filthy martini as well, which has got a, quite a lot of brine in it. It is it's almost cloudy with the brine. Oh, gross. Yeah. So if you <laughs> like that olivey, olivey kind of salty kind of taste, um, go for a filthy. And as you've been in lockdown making these from home, is it necessary to wear a robe or is that just? <laughs> yes, absolutely. Like preferably, preferably silk. Um, and uh, yes, yeah. And I, I, I like a monocle while I'm doing it. <laughs> uh, and just, I know there's probably been theses written on this already, but with the Ian Fleming situation, was that just a placeholder that they never changed? Do you reckon? Yeah, I, yeah, I don't know because it's. I think they were saying. I was reading up about this, and they were saying with Ian Fleming that he actually, in the beginning, in his early books, the references were to a martini that was actually gin, but then for some reason it got swapped over to vodka. So I just they thought that you know Bond was an edgy maverick that you know drank his drank his martinis a different way, whereas he was just a you know a, a peasant barbarian. <laughs> <laughs> um, and if you if you're going to avoid the V glass, and I. I 
you know, I'm, I don't have much good to say about the V glass. What glass would you recommend? I use like, you know, you can just use a, a quite a sort of a wide based wine glass is pretty good. Or even like one of those stemless wine glasses. I, that's what I've been using. I have a, like a smaller, I got given some beautiful glasses and I have had a smaller one. And it's good because they take the olives really well. It's sort of like, you know, you've still got something to lean the olive thing on. I'm not a huge fan of the of the um, the V martini glass myself because my hands tend to shake a little bit. Yeah, because you know, you're so excited. Oh, Michael Harden, how exciting. Um, sandwiches last time, gin this time. Yeah, yeah. who knows what's next. <laughs> <laughs> who knows what's next. Uh, thanks very much, Michael. We'll talk again yeah, soon. No worries. Great to talk yeah. to you. Thanks. Triple R. If you walk into a shop right now, mm-hmm. um, what chocolate bar would you get? Snickers. Snickers. Snickers um, or a Boost. Oh, controversial, the boost. I know, it's weird, isn't it? I just like a bit of texture. Yeah, it's divisive. What about a picnic then? Oh, I used to love a picnic. Oh, God, I don't know. Snickers on top for you? Yeah. I think a picnic potentially crumbles too much. Yeah. And if you want bang for your buck, you don't want any winding up on the footpath. You want it all... In the gob. Yeah, in your mouth. That's why a flake's at the bottom of the list. Terrible, aren't they? Yeah. yeah. Do you know what I do like is a twirl because it's oh. I love a flake, but I it's it's wrapped in chocolate. It's a safe flake. Yeah, it's yeah. safe flake. <laughs> I'm a big fan of a big fan of a twirl. Um I got asked this question the other night, um when we were backstage at a gig on the Friday night and we all went around and you know, talked about which chocolate bar we liked. And then the person the room booker, um, the next night Rocked up and she'd bought oh. us all the chocolate bars that we... What? I know. My brother did a similar thing at Easter a couple of years ago. We had a similar conversation. Oh, what What do you reckon? What's your chocolate bar of choice? And again, mine changes. I think at the time I said Twix. Love a Twix. Again, the t- texture. Oh, yes. Love a good Twix. Forgotten about that. And then the next morning, woke, and that woke up and under our pillows, he'd like an Easter bunny, had put little bags of all the mini versions of the chocolate bar we'd mentioned. Wow. So what a guy. Was snuck in while you were sleeping yes. like a creep. Yes. <laughs> I haven't seen him since, actually. <laughs> Uh, was it intent? Did the conversation was it engineered for that purpose? Or? No, it yeah. was just. Um, it was just. I think she was just doing a nice, and she went, "Oh, do you know what would be nice?" Is to, yeah, except she'd forgotten one of them, and so it was just a weird text message that it's I. It's probably got. the Milky Way. It's always the Milky Way. <laughs> <laughs> but she messaged me going, um, "Weird question, but what was the? <laughs> who's the, What did Adam say? What was his favourite chocolate bar? Um, What's yours?" I said a twirl. Oh, yeah, yeah safe yeah. flake. The safe flake, which, yeah, I will rename the safe <laughs> flake. Um, when I was a kid, though, it was always – it was a Mars bar. I was obsessed with Mars bar mm. as a kid. But they were the, the – I feel like they were the most advertised chocolate that bar in, like, the 90s. Yeah. yeah. Mars bar, a Mars a day. Um, I mean, I would never buy one for myself. It's been a long, long time. If they're around, I might. Give it a go. Yeah. But if I'm going to choose a confectionery, it's going to be something. What un- would you get? You want what? a little sweetie. What are you going to get? Yes. Yeah. Well, I mean, the other day I bought a, a chocolate ice cream, right? <gasps> a, a, you know, the, in a cone. Oh, yeah. And I got two scoops. It was super, super dolce, I think, and, and praline or something. And I was so excited. 
I was like, this is the most indulgent thing you've done it in a is, while. It is pretty indulgent. And, and you're just owning it and you're not feeling bad about it. No, you shouldn't. <laughs> and it was a really hot day. Oh, oh, perfect. And I was like, this is fantastic. People would have walked past you on the street and gone, well, I should do that. This guy's winning. Yeah. Yeah. No shame. So I crossed the lights mm-hmm. and I'm standing at my door. Anyway, the, the, the scoop. It didn't. It fell on the no, ground. No, it didn't. Daniel, you I thought that it just happened hard. in cartoons. Splashed on my foot. <gasps> and so I just continued to walk upstairs <laughs> and sat with like this, you know, drenched hand. Oh, and, oh and, heartbreaking. Uh, yeah, and decimated uh, dreams. So oh. just ice cream in a cup from you for now on, <laughs> yeah, is it? Exactly. Oh, it's much safer. <laughs> I'm trying to mature now into the cup. Um, I remember when, um, when we got... Like my brother and I, we were both obsessed with Mars bars and occasionally Snickers, but mostly Mars bar. And I remember when king size Mars bars, the mm. Snickers came in, and we just thought it was like, oh my god, can mm. the world get any better? <laughs> like <laughs> it's king size. Yeah. Like we were. Um, like he got a job quite. Like he left school and had had this job quite early. So, like he was sixteen years old and just like had. Money. Like had a wage, mm. so it was just like mum and dad would be out on a you know Friday night or whatever, and then Martin would come to me, and it just with so much money, and he'd give yeah. me like twenty bucks. He goes, "Go to the shops." I'm oh. like, "No problem, no problem." He goes, "Go and get," and I'll, we would get two king size Mars bars, and like two dollars worth of mixed lollies, which. You know, a dollar's worth of mixed lolly was a huge bag. And we were just like, so we'd get two Mars bars, like a can of Coke and like a massive amount of mixed lollies. And then I'd ride my bike home. And of course he'd go, I'll time you. I'm like, oh, yeah. Yeah. But I was just so obsessed with having, anyway, it was Two dollars. I didn't even know the bags came that big. I know. It was, now they probably do because of inflation. Yeah, but, yeah. with inflation. <laughs> yeah, but back in the day, it was like, there were there was just these jumbo bags. We're like, yeah, we'll get one of them. Oh. It's, a couple of them. It's weird because last night I went out for Vietnamese and mm. it, very you know normal, but it's just this weird thing where I think I've gotten into a habit where I just have to have a little something. You sweet. want sweets? Yeah, just want a little sweet to end the night. And of course, I'm not you know finished dinner, left, and just was driving home the whole time being like, and I was so close to, like, pulling over and buying a little chocolate bar. Mate, I so, didn't know. Could I, so was I, because I had the same thing last night. Mm. I had had an early dinner because then had to go to a gig, and I went, do you know what, you've done quite well today. Like, you've, mm. you know, you, do, you you can have a little treat if you want. Maybe you could get, like, a little ice cream on the way <laughs> home or something. If you want, you can. But I, and I thought, or you could, you know, just go home and not worry go about you yeah. know and and that's what I did. I think mm. seeing people just quickly break their tooth on confectionery. Oh yeah. It's so sad. Because <laughs> <laughs> they've set out clearly to make themselves feel a little bit better. And now they have two thousand dollar dentist bill. <laughs> Independently yours. Triple R. One oh two point seven Taking place at Old Melbourne Jail, Bending the Bars is a new exhibition that commemorates the 40th anniversary of the decriminalisation of homosexuality in Victoria. And to tell us about it, we're joined by art expert and the exhibition's curator, Andrew Gaynor. Andrew, welcome to Breakfasters. Um, good morning to all of you. Good morning. Where do you, where do you start trying to put together an exhibition like this? Uh, throwing your hands up in the air and going, oh my God, uh, that's a pretty good place. <laughs> no, um, look. 
it was all brand new information for me um, because number one, I didn't grow up in Victoria and number two, I'm not of the queer community. So it was an absolute immersion into some of the most astounding history. So easiest thing was is, okay, let's divide the exhibition into two, um, which is one, that the part that leads up to the actual legislation in, well, the vote was 1980, but it came into law 1981. And then the second part was uh, the 40 years in between and what I did as a start in many ways was reach out to so many of my friends who are of the community um, from elders such as Margaret Roadnight the folk singer all the way through to uh, younger artists in their 40s, 50s, and from there just started constructing names, contacts, building up, building up, and um, and uh, taking it as the direction led itself, shall we say. Mm. And, and what are you trying to capture? I'm trying to capture the essence of it. So in the, um, it's, and I'm not shying away from the dark sides of the stories, but I really want to show the positive steps, the incredible uh, sense of community that started building amongst that, uh, the sense of political identity, camaraderie, and um, just incredible progress that's been made in all of that time. So um, those are the major aspects, and that's what I really hope comes across to those who see the show. Um, can you talk to us about maybe some of the heroes, I guess, who were influential in the in the decriminalisation? Absolutely, and I use uh, hero as a, as a gender-neutral term uh, because admittedly this story is predominantly a male story because, after all, they were the ones who were thrown into jail, they were the ones incarcerated. But mm-hmm. it's really important to me to include the women's story because, after all, they had a far more insidious form of decriminalisation. For instance, you know, if word got out, they could be institutionalised, they could be subjected to all sorts of invasive things like electric shock therapy. They could have their children taken away. So it was just as insidious. So as a result, heroes to me are in the there's definitely a gentleman called Jamie Gardner who features a lot in that. Uh, there's another extraordinary woman, Jude Munro, who um, you may know she's now the CEO of the Pride Centre. Um, but as a 19-year-old in 1971, she uh, basically made her own um, pamphlet to hand out, handwritten, etc., about what it's like to be a lesbian, and stood on the steps of Flinders Street Station handing it out to people in 1971. Mm. Uh, so it's characters like that. But what I also do is there are various people who fell by the wayside because of, de- because of violence, discrimination, etc. And there is a section that absolutely highlights five of them. And um, so I see them as being heroes within the story just for having endured that on behalf so many other people. And how do you use the space, which I imagine is also sort of an object of the exhibition? It is, absolutely. I mean, it's such an... My, oh, I had never been into the old City Watch House, and for those who don't know exactly where it is, you probably all know where old Melbourne Jail is. Uh, this City Watch House is the building right next door in between it and the old courthouse on the corner. And it's the most unobtrusive from outside, and when you walk in, the decor is straight out of, I don't know, 1950 slash... They might have put a, a lick of paint on it in 1970. Uh, you have... 
you walk in your, your processing area, and for those who are old enough to remember the original Homicide TV series, that was where all um, prisoners were processed on the TV series. And I, I walked in there, and the first thing I saw was going... I know this from TV, and they all laughed and said, yes, that's actually where it was done. Um, but then you walk into the main section, and the men's section is just a long corridor with cells running off each side. There's a big exercise yard. Uh, you walk over to the women's section, which is smaller, but the um, very first inhabitant of the City Watch House in 1909 was a woman uh, who was caused a ruckus during the um, formal opening and was dragged in. Anyway, um, but so there are individual cells and corridors, and so I've, as I mentioned, I've divided it into two, and one cell and one corridor on one side has the pre-1981 story, and then what is known as the men's solitary cell and the men's solitary exercise area is where the post 40-year period is exhibited. Mm. And with your experience, uh, do you do street art tours? Am I, am I making that up? <laughs> Have you been checking my CV? <laughs> <laughs> I got you on LinkedIn. <laughs> but I'm, I'm... But, well, look, uh, that, yes, um, we, did, we used to do, we had a company called Art Aficionados, and uh, so we would do all sorts of city tours, architectural tours, history tours, um, live theatre tours, as well as art, and occasionally street art. But I've got to be honest, uh, Blender Art Studios, uh, the ones who are all over the uh, street art, so we should pay homage to them. Yeah. <laughs> I, I'm, I'm just thinking with your experience sort of leading punters around, how does that inform, you know, being on the ground of what sticks and what doesn't? How do you bring that sort of accessibility sense into curating an exhibition like this? That is a really excellent question. Thank you. Um, it actually does follow in that. Uh, for instance, uh, in the corridor, with, which charts the whole legislative process, you've got to look at that as a narrative. And it starts at one point, it goes through high points and runs all along the corridor. Now, part of that is, how do you make that interesting? It's a dry legislative process, mainly involving behind-the-scenes letter writing. But you do that, you start building out the stories, you look at it, you highlight characters so that people are reading a little excerpt going, oh, and then they read the next one and it goes on. The same thing happens with the actual physicality of the place. So as you go from one section, say the earlier section, and then wander through the yards to the other, you pass all of those grim build, grim uh, cells, and they further inform the story because you've already read about it at the start to know this was where people were incarcerated, this was where it happened. So you're, it's as if you're taking that information with you in your brain as you then walk along and go, oh, my God, how grim. And then you find this final space, which, again, is a, originally a dark space, but to suddenly walk in there and see positive stories saying, look, Yes, this is, but look at what's happening here. And um, so the architecture definitely does pay, play within that, as does the original graffiti from um, the prisoners who are in there, which tells their own story, as does the padded cell, which isn't part of the tour, but it's right there mm. next to um, the mm. exhibition space. And they all tell that story within it all. Goodness. Um, and it's on every day? 
It's not. It's on from Wednesdays to Sundays. Uh, and what you do is you buy a ticket to the whole uh, old Melbourne jail complex. And within that ticket, you then get this exhibition as part of it when you walk through the um, City Watch House. Brilliant. Well, the Bending the Bars exhibition is on now until the 17th of May. For more information, head to Old Melbourne Jail, and that's, of course, G-A-O-L, oldmelbournejail.com.au. And we've been talking to the exhibition's curator, Andrew Gaynor. Thanks so much, Andrew. A pleasure. Can I do a very quick shout-out to my nine-year-old daughter who should be getting ready for school? <laughs> Come on! <laughs> Thank you. Thanks, Andrew. Thanks, Andrew. See you later. Bye-bye. Restrictions are easing. Two two words that are just bring joy to restrictions. Oh no, it's more than two oh. words. <laughs> I was like, what are the two words? Easing restrictions. Yeah, I just said restrictions easing. Yeah, yeah that works. Yeah. But restrictions are easing. What a great sentence. Um, so we get to, um, you know, do things this weekend. I'm sure, you know, I don't know if people – this is the – it's that thing where you tentatively make, make plans. You're like, mm. oh, maybe we could do mm. this, but we'll just – you know what, this is our life now. We have to see, you know, we have to be prepared for disappointments that it might not go ahead, mm. but it looks like it's – going to go ahead. So what are your plans for the weekend? I have a hens party tomorrow. Do you? Mm. What are you going to do at the hens party? Well, I are just... Are there sashes and... I don't know. Straws? Oh, probably. Really? Yeah. I very... It's the third... It's always like the third time it's been rescheduled. This wedding was supposed yeah. to happen last June and then December and then they ended up just doing a small one and then they're having a big wedding, like a party thing yeah. next month. So the hens is finally going ahead um, and love the bride dearly um, but just don't know many people going Oh, and I'm dreading it. Yeah. <laughs> I've been to like more bucks nights than I have hens, really? hens nights. Yeah. yeah. They're different. <sighs> I remember – Emceeing party bus. I used to emcee a lot of hens nights. Did you? Yeah. Oh, what a job. <laughs> oh. <laughs> On a bus. On a bus and then in various clubs and stripper <laughs> joints. Uh, and what, what would you say? Well, a, a lot of the time it, it would be. It was just wrangling. Well, it? It, that, I had a microphone mm. and, you know, it's just about whipping up good times. Yeah. And, um, but there was one that will stay with me where the uh, the hen knew maybe three people on her own bus. What do you mean? Who like, was there? I don't know, just friends of the month. She just didn't have any friends. Oh, this – oh, God. <laughs> so sorry. Well, this person Few has a lot of – broke your games on the bus then, <laughs> yes. was there? So who were you? She <laughs> 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 tried to roast the hen and no one knew her. Oh. Uh, but that's they would friends would fill out ordinarily fill out you know embarrassing stuff yeah yeah like this is you know I don't I didn't, didn't arrange it I just I was just doing yeah. my job yeah, yeah. <laughs> giving the people what they want uh, but yeah you would pick them up um, at different well you'd pick them up at one house and then travel into the city mm. and then they would you know obviously get increasingly. Inebriated. Yeah, 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 along the way. But, there, you know, like there was – and you'd have to time toilet break. I mean, ideally there would be no toilet break, but mm. sometimes 
There had to be. Oh, yes. And the bus driver would, you know, because they're screaming at me <laughs> to pull Do over the bus. you to lie down on the couch and talk about <laughs> yeah, it? No, no, I didn't know. I just realised that's and not what we were talking about. Screaming at <laughs> No, but... Anyway. So, yeah. Just going down the east in free. Like, <laughs> That's right. <laughs> She's be... got to go. <laughs> exactly. That'd be me tomorrow. Ten shardies. Yeah. In. Come on. Yeah. Uh, Dad um, was, um, at the end of his career, was a bus driver and would, yeah, this one where he went to a winery. Like it was the things where he'd take people to a place like a winery or something and, you know, just wait until they were finished and then take them back to home, whatever. But there was one where he just he went, oh, I don't want to wait anymore. And he just went in and goes, time to go. <laughs> <laughs> Wrap it up. And like the organ, I was like, oh, yeah, yeah, no worries. You know, because the bus driver was ready to go. So <laughs> he was gathering everyone up. And then Dad went back out to the bus. He was like, where's, where's the bus gone? And he'd left the park break off and the bus had rolled down a ditch and then he just goes back and he goes, I'll keep it going for a bit. <laughs> what the hell? Oh, my God. It didn't work much longer after that. <laughs> um, do you know, uh, because I look out my window, I see a lot of people I don't, and I, there's a lot of bucks and hens in my area, mm-hmm. parties. And it, will, will I see you out on the street? Well, I realised, I just, I thought, oh, before I talk about it on air, I should check. And the email, one of one of the many emails over the last 12 months has said, don't don't tell the bride what we're doing. Oh, so I can't okay. give too many can't... details. But I, my biggest fear is that there is almost something guaranteed to be public. Um, and I'm wondering if I can jump on a tram and leave. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You, just... you can do, I've seen some hor- horrific Working in hospitality yeah. at, at venues that host host Bucks Nights and Hens Nights. Yeah. Like, I've seen enough to know that what I don't want in when I have one. Yeah, mm. yeah. Um, anyway, but that's – I'm not having a Hens Night. You're, what, aren't, you've got a party this weekend, do you? Yeah, well, it's probably just a barbecue situation. Family, haven't seen people. It's interesting um, – God, no, why? I feel like I'm a bit too loose this Friday. Oh, maybe oh, the hens God. has already started. <laughs> yeah. Well, there was, a, there, was, there was a text message going around. So the family is catching up. Mm. There's a text message going out around saying uh, this member of the family has a hole in their heart. Right? Oh, my God. So it's like, oh, that's a nightmare. But then, like three hours later, it's confirmed that it's actually a good thing because now we know what. A previous problem was. Yeah, and that's a hole in the heart, easily fixed. Doesn't it show you how different facts framed differently can be good or bad news? Yeah. But it's, sorry, it's the same fact. Yeah. But it's framed differently. Yeah. Anyway. Trying to think of another example of that. Yeah. Think about it later. (laughs) Yeah. But but (laughs) it'll be, I mean, I might just perch, last night I just perched myself at a bar and read. Oh, wow. I, was, I thought about doing that. Mm. I was so close to doing that. I was on my way home and went, I'm just going to go sit at the bar and have a beer and um, and then I had a bath instead. I'm flying to Sydney today. Oh. Whoa. Yeah. Very excited. I'm doing a show at the Enmore Theatre tonight. That's cool. very cool. For Mardi Gras. I'm so, <gasps> yeah, it's so cool. 
And it's one of those things where it's always been like, so Kath said to me, she goes, are you excited? And I went, I haven't allowed myself to get excited about it because there's, you can't, I can't get excited about things, too excited about things anymore because mm. it just, they get ripped away. So I'd go, so now I'm like, yeah, I think I might be a little bit excited. But also because I haven't really thought about it, I haven't. I don't know what I'm going to wear. I don't know what I'm going to take. So I've, you know, got to work out. Some thinking ahead of you this morning. Yeah. Yeah. Well, hopefully I get to see, you'll be interstate. Maybe Mm. I'll get to see you, Mon. Yeah, Uh, wearing, carrying an inappropriate straw. If you're, (laughs) maybe keep your mask on. Just say, what? I'm just, I'm COVID safe. Yeah, Yeah, that's why. I'm not a party pooper. I'm just really conscientious. Melbourne's own Triple R. You've been listening to a podcast of the best bits of The Breakfasters, which is the Monday to Friday breakfast show broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia. Feel free to get in touch with us via Facebook, Twitter, Instagram or via the Triple R website.